cathartic experience right, through right. The, the lens of an improv game. Greetings, discerning podcast listener, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back. We, we've, we've, I feel like we're back from something in that we have just finished a month of Arthur Miller plays. We've been on a journey, and we've, yeah. we've returned to the land of the normal. Right. <laughs> the land of the no, the, the land of the more current. It was a great month. We had a lot of fun uh, talking about the Arthur Miller plays and interacting with all of you about that. Thank you to everyone who has tuned in and been a part of that. But we are once again foraying into other worlds, newer worlds. And one of, well, maybe not newer because we have done this <laughs> this author before. We're returning to Annie Baker this week. That's who right. uh, We did in the first season. We did uh, her play The Flick, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, I forget which year that was. But this play that we're going to be talking about from hers is Circle Mirror Transformation. Right, yes. And before we hop into our discussion about Circle Mirror Transformation, we do want to take one second to remind you, if you haven't already, please hop over to patreon.com slash podcast. That is where you will find our Patreon setup and become a patron of this show. In order to continue to do what we're doing, we need support from our listeners and our community. What we do is a lot of fun. It's something that Jackson and I are really passionate about and enjoy doing, but it is not a free activity, unfortunately. Unfortunately, alas, if only it was. Not to mention all the hours that Jackson and I spend um, preparing the episodes for you to listen to and preparing ourselves for these conversations, but we also pay monthly subscription fees for the places where we host the podcast, and then, of course, the purchasing of scripts that we can't find at our libraries and other such costs like that. So it's not free for us to do, so we need your support. On patreon.com slash podcast. there are a couple of tiers which you can choose from, whichever fits your monthly budget budget best right now there's a one dollar tier a month and a five dollar tier a month those will get you access to patron only posts and then at the five dollar tier you'll actually have your name said in the episodes in our special thanks section um, for those people who are supporting the show in that way so like the lowest tier is one dollar a month i hope that you can afford that and more than that i hope that you feel like you are getting one dollar a month of return on the time that you spend with us listening to no script so please 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 if you haven't already hop over to patreon dot com slash no script podcast yeah we'll see you over there but we'll listen to you here that's the way that works right? <laughs> you'll, you'll listen to us here we're gonna uh-huh. jump into our conversation about circle mirror transformation we like to contextualize it just a little bit um it received it a uh, circle mirror transformation received its off-broadway premiere at the playwrights horizons on uh, the 13th of october 2009 um so it's it's a uh, a little bit older whatever that was 10 years ago ish um, it was uh, developed uh, as part of a kind of a fellowship uh, at, a, at a, the New York Theater Workshop and the Sundance Institute and uh, directed by Sam Gold there. Uh, it won some awards. It won the Obie Award, uh, nominated for the Drama Desk Award, um, and uh, had a good run there and had another run over uh, in the European com- premiere at the Royal Court Theater. And uh, so, yeah, it's it had its run. The, the Royal Court Theater was 2013. So it's been a couple of years since it's been produced in a in a, one of the larger performing houses. But I imagine that this play is produced 
quite a few places because it is such an accessible play for people to pick up and do. Yeah, really so. producible. I mean, not only just the fact that it's a small cast, but also there's not enormous set or technical requirements. There's not enormous requirements in terms of space or uh, like there's not a lot of really, really foul language. There's not a really, really um, inaccessible use of uh, places in the world or things like that. You could really mm-hmm. do this in most community theaters educational field houses across the country yeah you could do it in a community center room <laughs> like yeah, just, just put some chairs around and just do it in there yeah it's a really good play for that anyone can do it and i will probably end up doing it now that i'm I've read sure it. <laughs> that i will do circle mirror transformation yeah. at some point i'm very fond of this play and have been um this is kind of a it's it's a defining play for Annie Baker. It's one of the plays that really sparked interest in her as a playwright across the country. And it's also the play that most people associate with her. Even though the flick is more new and perhaps more highly lauded, what I have found among people that I know is there is a, a love... Um, like a a really strong, passionate following for Circle Mirror Transformation. And many of the people I know that love, love, love this play don't like the flick and feel yeah. like the flick is, is in a totally different direction for Annie Baker. And a lot of them feel like the wrong direction for Annie Baker. So that's interesting. Mm. I like both of them quite a bit. It would be hard yeah. for me to say I, I like this one more than that one, although uh, there's a special place in my heart for the flick uh, as one of those plays of the last five, ten years that I've really mm-hmm. fallen in love with. But I love Circle Mirror Transformation too. The play is five cast members. It is about a small adult drama class in a little small town in Vermont. This community center decides to hold a, like I said, an adult drama class. The teacher is Marty. In the class is her husband, James. They're both uh, like 55, 60, Marty 55, James 60. Then there's two middle of life people. Schultz is uh, his name. He is about 50 himself. And then Teresa, she is about 35. And then there is a teenager named Lauren, just 16. So those five people make up the quintet of stories of lives that we follow through basically six weeks of community drama class. And interestingly, what what occurs in this drama class, and it's actually commented on by some of the characters at one point, is not what you'd expect not what maybe most people would expect from a drama class. They don't rehearse scenes from plays. They don't read scripts. They're not prepping towards a performance. Ultimately, what they do is show up and play a bunch of theater warm-up games. So if you've not read this play, but you've been in theater for a long time, either in your high school, your college, your local community theater, you are going to read this play and just get hit with an absolute wave (laughs) of nostalgia. (laughs) Yep. Oh, man. All the frustration about the counting game. The counting (laughs) game is in there. Obviously, the play is titled Circle Mirror Transformation, which is the name of that game where one person starts a pattern and it's passed around and then it's changed by the next person line that game is in there uh um, what else jackson what are some of the other theater games that they play oh let's see there's like there's like the amplified one where they will take take uh what someone does and, and blow it up out of proportion there's a explosion um, tag that's explosion a classic theater tag, tag. Yep. yep the the building sentences one where like i brought a this and, and you the, uh, yeah, pass it on to the next game. one yeah there's the the game where everybody says one word of a story 
That's yep, in that's there. used a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the counting one is is used uh, repeatedly though, as almost a kind of a recurring theme throughout the play. You track some of their progression in 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 the class with that workshop as you walk through the play. Absolutely. So, Jackson, in your copy of the script, do you have an author's note prior to the text? I, yeah, I do. Yeah, see, she's provided in my copy and Jackson's copy, and potentially more copies than that. Um, I'm not sure which editions or publications include this note and which don't. A, a note from the author, a note from Annie Baker, and the author's note is about the pauses and silences in the play. There are many of them. The play reads very, very quickly. Um, you can read it in probably a half hour, 45 minutes at most. Because the, the the amount of dialogue to page space is uh, there's not there's not a lot of dialogue to the page because there's so short. many um, there's so many stage directions which indicate that you should pause or have a silence or a long silence and she includes this uh, about a three quarters page note in my script uh, which describes that you absolutely under no circumstances should cut out the pauses should shortchange the pauses she gives some descriptions about how long each pause uh, or each kind of language of pause you know the difference between a pause and a silence or, and a short right. pause so she describes kind of approximately how long all those things could be so the use of the silence in the play is a really important feature of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That she will not she does not let up on that at all. She even like goes so far as to predict that there will be a point where the actors will say, I think this play is just boring. I we need to pick up the pace a little bit. And she just said, You have to fight against that because the, the pauses she thinks are what makes this play. It it goes so far as to make me wonder if you need like, you know, a school clock in your set design. <laughs> For their A, to, you know, reinforce that theme of like time passing with people saying nothing, but also just to time the pauses because <laughs> she has really prescriptive, uh, you know, this is a five second pause. This is a 10 second pause. This is a 45 second pause. And and you you want to have those in there because part of the fun of this play is watching these people be awkward together in silence. And maybe fun is the wrong word. Part of the resonating part of this play is watching these people be silent together and awkward. So what about that, Jackson? So she says in the author's note that somewhere during your rehearsal process, you, your cast, your team, they're going to start to go, is this play boring? We don't talk a lot. We're just playing games. It moves really slow because of all these pause we're putting in. I think it's boring. What about that? Is it boring? I don't think so. I think it's electric. I think it should be electric anyway. That's that's the challenge to the actors, I guess, is to make those silences electric because there is so much chemistry between all of these characters and sh- and shared care- uh, chemistry across what should be expected to be okay sort of lines. Um, as they meet together for six weeks, multiple people fall in love with Teresa and and that all comes to bear and everyone's saying things that, that, that aren't exactly their subtext. So I think all of that comes out in the silence. The challenge is conveying it in your in your body and in your acting through the silence. 
Right, yeah. I mean, one of the brilliances of the play is the way in which Annie Baker uses the language, the text of theater games, and undergirds it with an enormous amount of subtext. And if you've participated in lots and lots of theater games in your life, Jackson and I have participated in more theater games than we know what to do with, <laughs> even yep. in our short time. Uh-huh. Theater games are a huge part of our education, and, and they continue to be part of my processes. And if you've done a lot of that, you know that it's not just the language that you say in theater games that matters, but the pauses are also a language of the game. One example Mm -hmm. of this is the counting game. So if you've never played the counting game, you and your cohort, your (laughs) ensemble, your group, whatever, you stand, in the way that we played it, you stand in a circle and your eyes are closed and you're holding hands. It seems like this Annie Baker imagines a little bit differently. They're lying on the the ground with their eyes closed, sort of all separated from each other. Uh, You know, six of one, half dozen of the other. But ultimately, the goal is that you're going to count, in her case, to 10. We used to count as high as we could go. In this play, the goal is to get to 10, and no one has been prescribed what number they're going to say or how how long it takes for somebody to say it. The goal is for the group to get to 10 without interrupting each other. So somebody says one, and then someone else is supposed to say two, and someone else is supposed to say three, and so on. And the minute that two people try to talk at the same time, you start over and go back to zero. And the game is about being present and being aware and not second-guessing yourself, trying to jump in when it is your time and not uh, uh, backtrack or not overlap somebody else. It's it's a really ensemble-building game. But the game has a lot of silence in it. It does, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of breathing and a lot of just, especially with, you imagine all five of these actors lying on the ground. As an audience member, I do wonder... What audience is this for, right? Like, this is an audience, I I think that this is a specific type of audience that will resonate with this. Obviously, you and I, or just theater people in general who have played theater games, will sit in those moments and go, oh, that's nice. Or, <laughs> or or alternatively, in listening to the counting game, I mean, those are people who are theater people and know the stress and the tension that the <laughs> yeah. counting game ultimately oh is. Oh, my gosh. We'll sit there going, nobody knows. <laughs> don't, don't interrupt. Oh, shoot. They interrupted. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, a, there's an institutional memory of games mm-hmm. like that where you can say, I've been there. I know the feeling of playing that game. So watching someone else play it, even though they're not saying anything, the yeah. silence is is where the tension lies. Because (laughs) finally, when someone says something, you go, okay, they got Uh through that one. (laughs) And then the silence occurs, and that's where the tension builds again. Mm -hmm. Which is this play. Now that you say that, that is exactly what this play is. You're so relieved when finally just someone just finally comes out and says it. Um, whatever it is that they're kind of holding back. and uh, But then but then they lapse back into silence and you watch the tension build again. That is a, a really interesting comment, that the, the counting game is a reflection of the whole play. And it occurs several times throughout the play. And I agree that the way that the counting game uses silence and where there's a, an ensemble-focused tension about what is going to come out next who's you know who's going to contribute something to the group next that is really an expression of the whole play all along so why didn't she title this play the counting game or something <laughs> similar why title it question. circle mirror transformation 
That's a good question. I mean, I'll I'll stab at it. I always hesitate to like <laughs> to jump into the playwright's mind in that, but um, but I I think it's because these these people do go through a transformation, and it's one that uh, the other people tra- uh, in uh, inform all the other people within this group inform each other's transformation. They grab something from someone else, and it affects them, and then they do something which affects someone else, which uh, goes around and around this this weird little once a week group for six weeks that wind up having a lot of effect on each other. Yeah, I, I really like that. This idea that what happens in the play is a slow building from one person to the next. Someone starts doing something and it's typically a pattern, the pattern of theater games, the pattern of an evening rehearsal. And, and then they add something to it that changes what's happening ever so slightly. They say, you know, we were doing this, now I'm on board with that, but now I'm contributing something different, a new layer of subtext to the games as they go on. Mm-hmm. Or like honesty even. Like just just the, the level to which they are comfortable with each other vastly increases by week five or six <laughs> versus the first one. They, they, they just develop that, that, which is kind of what Mar- the, the play in the author's note somewhere in the beginning, uh, she, uh, Annie Baker talks about how Marty is actually a great teacher. And, and, and throughout the play, you're not sure. That's one of the questions. Lauren, the 16-year-old, is coming to the class to learn how to be a good actor so she can get the lead in West Side Story. And uh, she repeatedly brings up, are we learning anything? And, and, and why aren't we doing any scenes? Why are we just playing these games? And Marty kind of sticks to her guns that this is what is beneficial. And I think we, we find out that she was actually right. They've, they've, they've learned to listen to each other in a way, with, with, as a result of her exercises. Well, and the, the end of the, you know, if we think about a play as a journey, the end of the play certainly is a journey for all of the characters. You know, sometimes Jackson and I, we sit here and we wonder, what journey did this character go on? <laughs> Are they right. any different now? But that <laughs> question does not exist for no. these characters. Each of the five has had their lives transformed by the events that occur in this drama. Class, absolutely, yeah, and and interestingly, the transformation in their lives come almost almost for none of them from the actual text of the play script. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's there's all there's not like big scenes. You know, we we just before we started recording, we talked about how different this play is than Arthur Miller, right? Because unlike right. Arthur Miller, there's no big screaming scenes, right? Right. There's no big scene where somebody finally comes out and accuses someone else of everything that they've been doing and everything that they've got wrong, and then that person goes off and dies because of the <laughs> thing that they yelled, right? I mean, that right. doesn't exist in this play, but nonetheless. The journey that each character goes on is impactful and life-changing, and it's all subtext. Yep. A lot of it happens off-scene somewhere in the week that goes by. They have other interactions with each other. Um, but, but yeah, we find out about them in theater class, which which is both such a bad way to find out about some of these things, like in real life, but it's also such a true way. Like <laughs> getting people together in these sort of regular meetings, you find out things about them that you would not have found out because outside life is <laughs> somehow less healthy than meeting together in a theater class and getting to veil unveil your soul to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the way that the games have subtext in them. I'll go first by describing one of the subtexts that exists among the games, and then we'll let Jackson have a go. So um, 
One of the running conflicts through the play is between James, who again is Marty's husband. He's an older guy, and he has a daughter, an adult daughter named Erin. And we learn somewhere near the early part of the play that Erin is no longer talking to James. So again, this is what Jackson was talking about, where we learn about something that has occurred outside of class that is now going to bleed into the class. So we learn that because uh, because Erin learned that James cheated on her biological mother. I guess. Uh, she's not talking to him anymore. So that's causing him quite a bit of distress. So they, they go into playing this game where um, one character will, uh, or one person in the class will, will go to the other four and sort of build a scene out of them. So far they've done tableaus where they just build a stage picture. This is the first time where they have built a stage picture that then turns into an improv scene of the person who built the scene's life. So like Marty, in giving an example, builds a tableau of her parents screaming at each other. But then later in the play, they do this scene. So Lauren, the teenager, has Marty and James play Lauren's parents. And Lauren is sort of trying to work out why her parents are always fighting um, and what they're possibly fighting about. So she provides a, just a little bit of context for Marty and James. Lauren doesn't talk about herself much, so she only gives really the barest details of why the two are fighting. And so Marty and James end up having this sort of improv fight where they're playing Lauren's parents. And what happens in the fight is that James, playing Lauren's father, gets incredibly upset with the fact that he can't connect with Lauren anymore. Well, you see the subtext, of course, right? It's really James being himself talking right. about the relationship that he can't have with his daughter, Aaron, and trying to figure out why that relationship isn't working by playing an improv theater game where he's pretending that he's got a failed relationship with Lauren, his you know in-character daughter. So that's one example of how the subtext layers itself into the games. That's a more overt one, honestly, through the whole play. There are a lot more subtle ones than that. Yep, like uh, I don't know if this one is necessarily more subtle, but uh, the the there's a, a significant portion of the play, especially the early play, is wrapped up in the uh, in Schultz and Teresa's uh, attraction to each other. Initially in the play, they they are. Uh, pretty nervous around each other. They have both ended long-term relationships recently and they find each other in this class and they're attracted to each other. And so uh, I believe Teresa ends up asking Schultz out for coffee and they start uh, uh, dating for a while. Um, but later on, there's been some more uh, signs of tension between them and they're doing this exercise where they only say one phrase back and forth to each other and try to develop different meanings from the phrase how they phrase it, the emphasis that they give to it. And the phrases they're trading back and forth are, I want it and you can't have it. And that goes back and forth a whole bunch. And then they switch phrases to, uh, I, I need you to stay well, I want to go. And that just kind of like nails their relationship on the head <laughs> um, is is Schultz is saying, I want you to stay. And and uh, yeah, no, I need you to stay. And Teresa is saying, well, I want to go. And that's the, the, you, you see them kind of get too far in that because that's that's what's going on in their relationship. Schultz is reaching out and, and needing her to stay and she's beginning to pull away from the relationship. So all all of that comes to a head in this work this uh exercise that goes just a little bit too far for them 
Right, absolutely. Another instance of this, and and maybe one that I want to dig in a little bit because it, it becomes so important for the end of the play. Um, this is a few weeks into class. James and Teresa are playing the old theater game where you're only given one nonsense word or phrase to use. And I actually use this in action rehearsals. Um, I will have actors play the scene as we've staged it, as we've blocked it, as we've imagined it. But instead of their lines, they say one nonsense word so that they can focus on playing the subtext. So they're doing that, but they're doing improv scenes. And, uh, uh, James, his word is akmak, and Teresa's word is goulash. So they're supposed to play a scene and only say those words, but through the tone, the emotion, the subtext of what they're conveying, they're supposed to have some sort of a dialogue. Um, I'm going to read off a couple of the highlights of the dialogue, and here's how we know what they're trying to say. Annie Baker includes in parentheses translations for the reader. I am not sure what you would do. Uh, if you were putting on the play, if it's even worthwhile to consider including the translations for the audience somehow, or if you're really totally relying on an actor's ability to communicate complex feelings in nonsense words. I'm not sure. But here's kind of the conversation that they had. Teresa's line, they, they, you know, they play around a little bit first. They're laughing and trying to get comfortable with it. And that happens throughout the whole play as they try something new. The characters are nervous about it. They're giggly about it. And then they kind of dive in and commit to it. So they do that a little bit. Then they dive in. And Teresa's part of the conversation is about how she feels really lonely and how she feels like James is also someone who feels lonely. And they share a connection as to that. So she says things like, uh, sometimes at night I feel lonely. She says things like, aren't you sad too. You are sad too. I knew you were sad too. I I feel like you understand me. So that's what she's saying. But again, all she's saying is goulash, 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 goulash. <laughs> but she's trying, somehow we're supposed to learn as an audience that she's communicating this feeling that she's lonely and that James is somebody who she feels like understands her. James, for his part, is talking about how he is very attracted to Teresa. Now, again, James is married to Marty. He's uh, much older than Teresa, about, what, 25 years older than her and married to someone else in the class. Right. Um, but this is what he, again, all he gets to say is akmak, akmak. But this is what he's supposed to say. You are very beautiful. I am attracted to you. I feel guilty when I think about how attracted I am to you. I feel like you understand me. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that, Jackson? I mean, we don't we don't do these to talk about how we would direct the piece, but <laughs> how uh, we have the benefit of reading that subtext, right? Right. And this all pays off later in the play, and this scene becomes crucial, right? Mm-hmm. Because really, this is the only scene where we get any kind of indication. I think that James is in a world of being attracted and uh, romanced by Teresa. Because then later in the play, the crucial revelation and and betrayal occurs because James feels this way. And isn't it possible that that feels really out of the blue (laughs) if you don't know what occurred in this scene? Right. I think it's possible, but I I don't think that lessens the uh, call to action that it necessitates because – that's so much of what this play is 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 emoting this subtext. I think I, I would be I would need serious convincing to project these up um, because because it is so 
the, the, the resonance that comes from all of them being able to read it, like the rest of the group pegs it perfectly, basically, or at least damningly for, for, uh, for James. Like they, they talk about how there's a lot of like, I think they say there's a lot of chemistry. Um, I think they actually say it seemed like they were in love. Yeah. They seemed like they were in love. They were sharing a secret and that James understood her. And like, so I think, I think you need to push that just to, to happen. Uh, and I think I don't know that it's that hard to show physically. You could even ramp the physicality up to eleven in that if you needed to to get it across. Um, that's that's what I think. I don't know what, what do you what do you think? Which way would you lean on that one? No, I totally agree. I think unless desperate times called for desperate measures, uh, I would definitely want to focus on the performances of the nonsense and use physicality and subtext to try to. Uh, even if you even if the audience won't understand the lines they can potentially understand the intentions especially James James side of it is easier to understand and i think Annie Baker knows that because that's the side that the other characters catch on to right nobody really says you know it seemed like Teresa's character was really lonely right um, right and that one that one is going to be harder but that one is borne out a little bit more across the core of the play than James affection for Teresa actually is Mm-hmm. There's one other like uh, scene prior to the secret scene where James comes in and, and has a conversation with her about uh, Schultz and, and their relationship and how it's falling apart that I think could uh, cue you into the secret scene and the climax as well. That's a little bit of a safety net for this scene. Right. But I yeah. think and you're to right use your the word, crux. there's a kind of a damning line in that scene. This is later in the play. Uh, Teresa and Schultz are over. James and Teresa are alone. Uh, he's asking her about Schultz, and he says, "Like, oh, well, why didn't we work out with Schultz? Was he was he like too old for you?" <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I agree. I think she maybe wrote a little bit of a safety net in there for you, so that you at least have one more time where you can clearly communicate to the audience that there's something going on. And and then beyond what is included in the script, ultimately it comes down to the actor who plays James. Right. He's got to live in a world in which he's really attracted to Teresa and in which, for some reason, by the end of the play, he chooses to admit that he's in love with her. Right. I mean, that's a little strong. <laughs> it is strong. Let's talk about that for a minute. So it's it, this, again, comes out in a game, and it's kind of a, a knee-jerk uh, game that uh, Marty thinks up on the fly, it seems like, um, or at least puts into practice on the fly as a result of a game getting too competitive. She starts having people write down uh, a secret that they've never told to anyone, and then everyone will take out the folded secret, unfold it, and read it. And even if you have your own secret... Right, so um, that, that's a crucial step there. They, they mix them up. You're yep. not reading your own. You're reading a random one. So in right. theory... To in theory, your secret I mean, is safe. I'm gonna just leave it totally in. In theory, your secret yeah. is safe. In practice, right. there's only five of them. Right. <laughs> it's not hard to guess handwriting or in a class tone of fifteen. Of a game like this could be fairly anonymous, probably. Right. In right. a class of five, it's not even difficult to figure yeah. out who said what. <laughs> I mean, there's not even a question. You and I could go through all of the secrets, but. I don't think that there's a point because it's so right. clear whose is whose. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. And and so so part of the tension that is built throughout this play is Schultz is beginning, I think, to figure out that James is in love with 
Teresa as well. So there's also that dynamic there. And and <laughs> what a what a idiot line. I mean, why why would he why would why he write down this? Would <laughs> like, he say that? <laughs> James writes down that he's in love with Teresa. <laughs> and so then they all read these secrets. Some of them don't have much to do with the rest of the play. Some of them reveal a little bit more about the characters, et cetera, et cetera. But the one that ultimately impacts the plot the most is Lauren stands up and reads off a scrap of paper. I think I'm in love with Teresa or something to the effect. Mm-hmm. And there's this long, again, that long silence. And this is, again, Annie Baker's silence is not just dead time. Right. This is reaction time. This is mm-hmm. we're all strangers, basically. Nobody knows how to deal with this. Who's going to be the first one to say anything? Tense reaction moments. Yep. And the reaction that is written in is that Schultz is just aghast. He right. looks right at James and cannot believe what he just heard. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if you didn't know whether it was Schultz or James before that, you sure <laughs> exactly. do now. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> You'll well, figure it so, out real quick. Let's let's imagine that, Jackson. What would possess James to write that down? <laughs> Surely he can't have been just it was too fast. That's eventually the excuse he makes, basically. In the in the next week of rehearsals, we learn that he and Marty haven't been living together anymore. She moved out. She's furious at him. She's basically not speaking to him. And he almost right away says, well, what did you expect to happen? You wrote this, you made this whole game about secrets. Did you want me to admit that in front? And it's like, <laughs> what a ridiculous that's a terrible argument. excuse. It's like, well, you said we had to tell secrets. So I guess I, I had to wrote. say that. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, he did not have to say that. It's it's totally outside the realm uh, of believability that it was like it, everything moved too fast and he just felt like he needed to write that secret down. Right, right. I think he's wrapped up. I think everyone gets wrapped up in the emotion that is this class. I think what this class winds up doing to a lot of people is make them listen and be together. And I think that's what Marty is trying to teach in this class is is the ability to listen well and react appropriately. So I think just across the board, everyone did that too much. <laughs> right. Yes, that's <laughs> that's definitely one of the realities of the play is that all of these people end up potentially over committing to the honesty <laughs> of the class. Yeah. And living absolutely. out some of their real lives in this theater class. And I and I totally agree with that. That part of it is sort of a hypnotic transformation that occurs when you enter these doors of this theater class. You become honest for some reason. But I also think it's possible and maybe even necessary that you you, you imagine a world in which James wanted to admit this. Either, and I'm not sure I'm not sure I'm convinced one way or the other, either as a sort of penance confession, as a, I need to air this uh, because this is going to come out, and I haven't told Marty yet, and what what better way than this? To, to get this out in the open so we can deal with it, so I can confess my sin and, you know, be absolved by my wife and hopefully it'll all be okay. That's one option. Another option is I – this marriage is not working and even at the subconscious level, things are falling apart. I want to admit that I want this marriage to end. 
And before all of you listening jump down my throats and say, wait, it seems like James really loves Marty. He seems so sad that she left him at the end. It's possible that the consequences were not what he expected, right? Right. It's possible that what happened is what he thought he wanted to happen. And then it happened and he realizes what a terrible mistake he's made. And also... Things are not all perfect in the wonderland of Marty and James' marriage right, through this yeah. play in a, in a more subtle way. Most of the other characters, in fact, maybe all of the other three characters, basically uh, hold Marty and James up as this uh, uh, pedestal of perfect marriage. Right, This yeah. gold medal you guys are so cute and so awesome. You're Living the best nice couple we know. And... You're so your your marriage is so strong and so wonderful. And one of the things that the audience learns that maybe the other characters don't clue in on as much is it's not all perfect in Wonderland. Yeah. Yep. Which which is true. I, I think that begins to come out um, in the kind of long week-long fight that they kind of had in just one or two lines that are centered around his daughter, Erin, James's daughter, Erin. Um, they, they come into class multiple times saying something about she is not accepting my calls, she's ungrateful, she's... And and you, you, you wonder what's going on. Most of the time you have no idea until finally towards the end of the play you figure it out and put it all together that he's been calling his daughter and she won't talk to him. And why is because Marty spilled the beans on something that she didn't know that Aaron didn't know, which is that James had an affair. So there is some blame in that, in that equation that I think James is dealing with. And, and whatever it is over these weeks comes to a boil that he's, that he allows to lead him to where he ends up. Right. And in the same scene that I described earlier, where Marty and James are improving as if they are Lauren's parents In that same scene, prior to the part where the discussion about Lauren subtext his daughter Erin comes up, there is maybe a half page, full page of back and forth improv argument about the the marriage of Lauren's parents and the reason why they're not talking to each other. They're not connecting anymore. They're not engaging. And he says, you're neurotic. And she says, you're absent and all this stuff. And I think it becomes – I think it's possible that the end of that scene where he talks more about his daughter maybe overshadows for the audience some of the possibilities that exist in the beginning of the scene, which is that it, it may be that at that point when he and Marty are back and forth thing pretending to be Lauren's parents, that he's not being Lauren's father anymore, right? right? The subtext mm-hmm. is he and Marty are really having these problems. He's accusing yeah. her of being neurotic. She's accusing him of being absent. Mm-hmm. I think that's an absolute safe assumption to make. I think James especially sa- makes that assumption safe because um, because he uses a word like neurotic and he, he and because Lauren doesn't give him much. He has two beats before they get into the real fight that he's like, I'm just I'm not sure what I'm doing here. I, I don't know what to do here to be your dad. And everyone just says, just do it. Just do the thing. Just do the thing. <laughs> and so he ends up falling into some of his own patterns of argument that he has. I think that's an absolutely the right choice in that is that he's actually letting his real life flow into this quote unquote role that he's playing to be Lauren's dad. Right. And I think that there's one more moment. There's probably lots more moments, but one more moment that really springs to my mind in the ongoing saga of the marriage of James and Marty, which is it's just a short beat 
uh, Marty and another character, and I'm hitting my head. I can't remember who she's talking to at the time. Uh, Marty and another character. It must be Schultz, actually, because James becomes running in as Marty and Schultz are talking and says, Whoa, hey, listen, listen. I was just hooping out in the parking lot. I did it for like a whole minute. It was incredible. Look at this. And then he sort of passionately kisses Marty and she's sort of embarrassed and it's sort of awkward that they're doing this. So I think there's a couple things to infer there. One, they don't have much physical affection as a couple because it's very clearly written in the stage directions that the physical affection they share in that moment should be awkward, unrehearsed, not very natural for them to do. Um, so even if they have regular physical, you know, as a, as a married couple, it, they're not used to the PDA. So that's maybe something to learn. But the other thing to learn is that for some reason, his experience with Teresa, when she finally gets him to hoop, which is something he's been failing to do across the play, he can't really figure out, you know, like a hula hoop, he can't really figure out how to make it work. So finally he comes in and says, I did it, I did it for like a whole minute. And for some reason, that experience makes him feel alive enough to want to rekindle this fire of, uh, mm-hmm. of he and Marty. So you wonder, where has it been? <laughs> Why does it take this experience with another woman who we know he's attracted to to interest him in Marty again? Yeah, that and there's some other there's some other things that kind of point to that that though though these two in class seem to be the most engaged, the most vivacious of the group especially initially. I think maybe Teresa gives them a run for their money eventually. But at the beginning, like in the in the shared stories we've mentioned before, that everyone has one word and uh, to that to share and develop a story. So you go around the circle, you say one word, and the story develops. James's are just ridiculous, like. <laughs> The ones that he says, I'm trying to find it, but he always, a, a story will be going uh, along in a certain way and he'll just throw in a weird word, just like enormous, like a, a part of all the mess and stuff. Enormous, James says. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so, so there is some, there is a disconnect. There is something uh, that is not necessarily a part of their relationships that they're living out, trying to live out in other areas with other people that they're not connecting when they come back together with. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we spent quite a bit of time now on James and Marty. Where do you want to go from here, Jackson? Which of the other three should we examine a little bit? Well, I think I think Schultz and uh, Teresa are a good one, and it's and it's almost unfair to say them in the same sentence because I think uh, though they do share some time in this script as as uh, interested in each other, they are ultimately two characters that go on their own separate journeys. But nevertheless, we should spend some time with them. I feel like. Right. So Schultz is a middle-aged guy, I think uh, 48, 49, somewhere in there. He's recently divorced. And this comes up a lot. One theater game that we haven't mentioned yet, which maybe applies very much to their relationship or lack of a relationship, is Marty has – and I've never done this, and I think it's a very interesting um, uh, game to practice with. Marty has each of them – say a monologue, an improv monologue, where they pretend to be each other. So right away, James is playing Marty and does a whole monologue where he's Marty. And then all throughout this, really spread out through the rest of the script, the different characters play each other. 
So at one point, Lauren, the teenage girl, plays Schultz, and she's ta- she's describing a lot of what they do is to sort of describe their life story as as little as they know about each other. And she gets Lauren gets to the part where, and so I met my wife Becky in college, and, and Schultz sort of interrupts her. She goes, "I was getting to that. That's right. And I'm divorced, and I'm in a lot of pain about it." Right. Right. Which, which side note is a great way to learn about characters <laughs> when, 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 it, when it's a play about not when it's not a play about sussing out people's backstory, but you want to connect with the characters quickly. What a great way to have someone else talk about everything about the character. Yeah, it's a remarkable <laughs> little device of playwriting because there's also the element of subtext of how these characters feel about each other. Yeah. And for a teenage girl like Lauren to be able to pick up on the pain that Schultz is feeling as a result of his divorce and then also feel like what he needs is to be encouraged. So she ends the monologue by saying stuff like, you know, and I shouldn't be so sad because I'm really such a great guy and stuff. I mean, right. that not, yeah. not only does that teach you about the facts of Schultz his life, but it teaches you a lot about Lauren as a character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that she is she's willing to like kind of suss out these these deeper things about people and be supportive, even though for much of the play she's kind of a quiet person in the scene. She's she's uncomfortable, and and I'm sure we'll get to. I, I definitely want to get to Lauren uh, at the end because she is she is very important at the end. But let's 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 try to stick on Schultz for a while. So in that in that uh, monologue that she gives, we find out a good deal about uh, his divorce and what he's carrying with that, and uh, we also uh, find out a lot about that through his relationship with Teresa. Um, Right. So he is attracted to Teresa kind of from the beginning. We get a few scenes when they're on break, basically, where he and Teresa sort of build the first steps of their relationship. They laugh. They flirt a little bit. They get to know each other. Eventually, Teresa asks him out to coffee. Um, and that's on or near the end of one of the weeks of rehearsal, one of the nights of the week that they rehearse. And then the next time that we see them, they're in the midst of a relationship. They're they're kissing all the time. He's pulling her away from rehearsal to sneak into the bathroom together. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. They're doing all of this. You know, they're very much together. Um, and then the very next week, it's over. And right. there's some fallout from it being over. Mm-hmm. And it's been, and it's interesting to kind of to 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 see the beats of this relationship happen a week at a time, um, because you don't get a whole lot of corroborating evidence on things. It's hard to invest in one side or the other because you only get this very slight amount of time within the workshop each week to make a decision on on these two people and how they're interacting with each other. Which is really, I, I appreciate how true that is to life in a lot of ways. You only get an hour or so with people every week um, in some instances. If you're not like close friends with people, um, you, you only have a short amount of time to have a judgment about that. So that's reflected in that moment of, or, or in those moments throughout the, the, the five, six weeks is uh, that their relationship is kind of falling apart outside of, of here. We hear that... Uh, uh, Teresa is not returning Schultz's calls, but Schultz is also like calling her a bunch <laughs> and it's not happening. Almost like borderline a little uncomfortable. So, right. Yeah. I, I love the the way that you talked about the structuring device too uh, of the different weeks. Rather than following a character across a timeline of their life, we really visit five characters at brief pictures. 
just of what's going on with them right now. And yeah. the theater devices become a technique to indicate to the audience what is going on with these characters now. And then we leave them for a time. And we come back a little while later and there's another picture. What's going on with them now through these theater games? What can we learn about their lives now? A little time passes. Picture. What's going on with them now? And then, of course, the end is really just another feature of that same device. And mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll talk about that here in a moment. Um, Schultz and Teresa are – I think they're probably – for a lot of people, well, what, what, one of the journeys that will be fairly memorable from the play mm-hmm. uh, because of how they, – they occupy quite a bit of the like plot time, I think. Does that, is that fair? Yeah, especially in the middle. Uh, I feel like a right. lot of the plot that we know we're supposed to be following is centered on them. Yeah, absolutely. And Schultz is really – in a lot of pain after this divorce. It's a year later and he's still wearing his wedding ring. He lives by himself in this condo, which he hates. And he, when someone is interested in him and he's interested in them, he sort of goes all in on this relationship and that causes Teresa to sort of back way off right away. Um, and then a lot of the rest of this, the weeks is spent sort of in the aftermath of their relationship. Uh, watching the fallout of what has potentially occurred between them. Mm-hmm. Those two remind me of the other two in the flick, and I'm and I'm uh, my, my my I can't remember the name of the characters from the flick, but these two and the the way the revela- the uh, the relationship devolves reminds me of that that tension in the in the flick as well between the two people who just miss each other in terms of what they want from each other, um, and and that's a huge huge part of this, but also the. Schultz's journey from the start of the play, we've talked about how everyone goes on a journey uh, in this play. And Schultz's journey is one of the um, more poignant and sad ones, um, but uh, ends on poignant because throughout the play, and this doesn't necessarily come out in the reading because it's so hard to track who is saying what on some of these scenes, but uh, the counting game, which we brought up a whole bunch, Schultz is almost always the one who double talks. Um, who says the number at the same time um, as someone else. So he's having a hard time with the games. He has a hard time with the scenes. Um, whenever he's trying to put his his image on other people on the tableau work, he has a hard time with those scenes. He has a hard time jumping into some of the workshops. But he's the only one who gives a, a gift to Marty at the end. He He listens to the the only time that uh, Marty uh, spoke to him really privately, he listened that she had these night terrors, and he gives her a dream catcher as a gift at the end of it to kind of speak into that. He heard her as a result. Uh, at the end of the play, they all take turns trying to say um, what, stories from the first day of the workshop, and people have various success. But he, you know, listened by the end of the play, which is a compelling journey for him in the middle of all this hurt that he puts himself through with Teresa and stuff. He still goes on, on a journey of, of growing throughout it. Yeah. And his journey too is recovering from this divorce and the very end of the play, we should probably just bring it up now because it's going to apply sure, a lot let's, for let's Schultz. Go for it. So the very end of the play, the last scene begins as a theater game And it is a game, it's an improv game between Schultz and Lauren, where they're supposed to imagine what it would be like 10 years from now if they met. And they're supposed to have an improv conversation about their lives and who they are and where they are. 
Uh, really, if the play had just ended like that, it would have been really interesting. But Annie Baker uses a sort of theatrical technique to, to make it a little bit different from that. But w- one of the things that Schultz says in that conversation where he's pretending that he's 10 years from now, quote unquote pretending, we'll talk about that. One of the things he says is, I'm married now. I'm married to a girl I really like. She's, you know, she's my everything. She's helping me through. She's picking my life back up. And so, you know, he his desired journey is one from being divorced to being married to someone again. And unfortunately, along the way, the way that his and Teresa's relationship breaks down pushes him farther away from where he wants to be. Yeah, that's true. He, he tries really hard, but it does it, it's like too short. It just doesn't work. They can't cross paths. Um so so as long as we're on Teresa, we got we got to kind of jump jump I really want to get to Teresa and Lauren as well. Um Teresa in the middle of that is is on a very similar journey, right? Like she just got done with a long relationship in New York. She has also left um, theater in New York in general. She's an actress who has moved to Vermont and uh, trying to do work on the, uh, with people that she knows and people she can affect. Um, and she kind of falls in love with Schultz for a little bit or is at least attracted to him enough and interested in him enough. But she realizes that this is moving too fast for her. So she steps away. She wants to go. Well, I want to go. Yeah. And I think that that, that the mention that you made that their journeys are very similar is one of the great confusions of the play for both characters. They both initially feel like we're in the same place. We're coming off of these relationships that really screwed us up. We're trying to figure our life out again. We're trying to move towards a place of healing. But ultimately, what they learn is our journeys were not as similar as we thought they were. Teresa's journey is this sort of long fear of being alone, coming out of this relationship with a possessive, verbally abusive person who really held tight to everything all about her life. And now she's moved away and on her own and she feels this great loneliness and emptiness. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the same journey that Schultz is on. Schultz is a more... Um, it's a more goal-oriented journey. Rather than running from the fear of being alone, I think Schultz is running to be married again. Right. Which is a different trajectory and not one that Teresa really wants to be on right now. Right, yeah, I think goal-based is the right way to put that. It's not experience-based necessarily. You're not trying to grow or something. You're just trying to achieve something. And and, I think that's why he throws himself into it so quickly. Um, Versus, you know, Teresa, in general, in this group, tries to have honest experiences with everyone. She's really, she, her uh, talk about James um, probably fuels some of the fire that is James. Um, but she, it's the longest monologue of anyone. It's uh, almost two pages in the script that she just like goes on and on about James. And she is committed to this, uh, to this uh, explanation of it. She kind of, I, I read a scene uh, where she is kind of helping, um, Lauren out in one of the acting scenes as kind of like her way to she it's it's her scene she's it's her tableau or living tableau of her life but she's kind of coaching Lauren every once in a while and she's giving good acting advice as a result of it Lauren asks uh, Marty why uh, Lauren asks Marty why Teresa isn't leading the class at one point because she's actually an actress so 
she has this this relationship with everyone in the group that she is committed and trying to have these full experiences out of this class. Yeah, Teresa has one of my favorite scenes in the whole play, and it's the tableau scene that you mentioned. So we get what what ends up, I think we drop right into it, as I recall, a scene between jo- James and Lauren where they are playing Teresa. Lauren is playing Teresa, and James is playing Teresa's old boyfriend, Mark. And they're having a back and forth about the, the relationship that was. Uh, the accusation is uh, Lauren playing Teresa says, stop haunting me, Mark. Leave me alone. And they go back and forth for a little while. And then I think a really remarkable thing happens, which is that Teresa steps in and plays herself. Yeah. She mm-hmm. takes over and is able to have at an imaginary Mark in the form of James, uh, have at this, this what she needs to get out, this leave me alone, this I can be my own person, this I can move on from you cathartic experience right, through right. The, the lens of an improv game. Yeah, yeah, that's that's like a, a very empowering, you know, if you want to talk about what theater can do on the community on the community level, that's a very empowering thing theater can do is it provides people the space to you know in in a uh, as as safe a space as this can be with how everyone wound up being intertwined in a space where you trust people work out uh things in your life that you wouldn't be able to work out otherwise. So I I agree that's a great scene. What do you think? Should we talk about Lauren towards the end here? We got, I think we got so. a little bit I think of time. So, yet. yep. Lauren is, like we said, a high schooler. She has joined the class to uh, learn some acting, to prepare herself for the auditions to for her school's play of the West Side Story. She wants to play Maria. Um, what what do we learn about Lauren as we go, Jackson? Well, Lauren. Lauren grows like uh, we've been saying that a lot. I'll try to make that more interesting. Lauren, (laughs) I think, uh, grows up in a lot of ways in this play. Um, She the the last scene that we've been talking about, uh, she and Schultz meet on the street 10 years later and and in and in what is an interesting little time switch. We don't know exactly when we switch to another time, if we switch to another time. But by the end of the play, it's kind of like they're actually ten years later, and we're actually listening to them right. ten years. So later. it starts like I described as an improv exercise, and then through some technical elements, some acting elements, it slowly becomes reality that now we really are watching Schultz and Lauren meet in a very odd two characters to choose for this meeting right, ten right. years later. But in that scene, I think I think we're made to, you know, wonder when exactly this is. But in that scene, she kind of talks about how some of her expectations weren't met, but that was fine. She, you know, she didn't play the lead in West Side Story, but she played like this the second tier or whatever, however you want to tier roles in West Side Story. She she was in West Side Story and she went off to college and did a whole bunch of theater in college, but now she's a veterinarian and she loves it. Um so so you kind of go on this journey with Lauren throughout the play of her being this kind of closed off character for a good first part of the play and not again like Schultz not really sure what to do with these um these uh, exercises and games but by the end she's participating in more of the game she's saying uh, she's being open to some of the criticism from others and she has this different perspective in that final scene that allows for a wider view of the world than just why are we not just doing scenes so I can get into West Side Story. 
Right. Yeah. One of the running conflicts, it comes up two, three, maybe four times through the course of the play, is that Lauren's mother hasn't sent the check for the class. Yeah. And it, it happens just in short snippets of dialogue, short sort of back and forths. I, I'm interested, Jackson, in what you make of that particular plot point. Does it serve any specific purpose? Do we really learn much about the characters as a result? I'm just not totally sure what that specific part of the play, what the function is. I'd agree with you. I I, I, I will admit my own uh, lack of understanding with it a little bit because it, it doesn't necessarily resolve. It's not like there's a moment where she admits that perhaps she never told her parents about the class or... Um, or that uh, her mom won't pay for it, and that's actually the lie she's been telling, or that uh, Marty eventually says, thanks for getting me the check, and it's resolved that way. Um, I... I, I'm a little in the dark, honestly. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what it's for. It's. 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 Um. It. It adds uh, tension in the initial scenes because you're like, will Lauren stay? Will she be a part of this? There seems a lot of tension around her character. Is is she getting anything of worth out of this? And will she stay at all? Because uh, or will Marty kick her out because she hasn't paid for it? Or will um, she quit? Yeah. Or will, will she, she stay? Quit? Yeah. Because she doesn't yeah. seem interested. In- especially in what's going on. The only thought that I really potentially have about why include that specific plot point is perhaps it is a way that Annie Baker is trying to cause the character of Lauren to deal with some higher stakes issues that she Hmm. maybe doesn't deal with as much throughout the play. And the higher stakes is not the right word. Um, um, some, some like, you know, like there's a big thing now of like hashtag adulting, yeah. right? This idea the, the, that like yeah, yeah, once yeah. I leave college, hashtag adulting, now I got to pay my own bills and right. cook yeah. for myself. I hate it. But <laughs> this is one of the features of millennial life now, I guess. Right, right. Um, so it might, it might be a way of forcing Lauren to hashtag adult. You know, like, how is this teenager who's got a lot of growing up to do, who's very shy, very uncomfortable in situations where she doesn't know what to do or how to do it right, where she's very uncomfortable in those kinds of situations, what's she going to do when an issue like paying for the class comes up? And there's there appears to be some problem, right? I don't know if maybe her family is poor and they actually don't have the money for the class or potentially um, because of we know the longstanding conflicts in her parents' marriage. There's something in that realm going on that has to do with the check. Or maybe it's just a uh, random happenstance. The, cha- the check really did get lost in the mail. But how is Lauren as this kid going to deal with this problem that her mother really should be dealing with for her? Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a great point, and I think that definitely uh, motivates. That would certainly motivate an actor to play the how to play those scenes that would otherwise kind of kind of wonder why they're there. I think the other thing that uh, just just hearing you say say those over and over that is kind of stirred up is I get the feeling that Annie Baker like lived this play somewhere. <laughs> like <laughs> like she has you know done this before and did research and 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 lifted some stories out of real life cuz that's just something that happens right all the yeah. time it adds verisimilitude to the play itself that you know kids don't 
talk to their parents about paying for the dang class and you have to hound the kid because you never see the parent and and that just adds tension and it adds truth to the story so maybe that 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 could also be just just part of the reason as well i totally agree with that as well i'm very on board with that so at the end of the play like we said it's lauren and schultz those are the two characters that we get as the Mm -hmm. final scene the reflection on what we've watched and the end of the play is Lauren asking this question. It's Laura, adult Lauren 10 years from now. We're led to believe that this is really happening in the future, that this is no longer an improv exercise. Somewhere in the course of it, that, that switch happens. Um, the stage direction is, by this point, everything is different. And uh, then for some, for somehow we're supposed to know um, or, or, or whatever. So this is the question Lauren asks. Do you ever wonder how many times your life is going to end? Like how many people, how many times your life is going to totally change and then start all over again? I'm interested in that question as the capstone of the play. You know, this is the image that Annie Baker leaves us with. This is the final thought, the the last bit of reflection on the events that we've witnessed. What is what – to me, that that question indicates that this moment, that this theater class was a moment where life started all over again, at least for Lauren. Do you feel like that's a, a fair judgment? I absolutely, yeah. And I think for more of the characters, you could make that argument, yeah. I think that's part of why this play resonance, re- resonates with people. I think... Underneath all of this, this subtext and all this character stuff that's going on and all these real life moments, I think a lot of people had have had these relationships, whether it was in high school or college or just like death. This is I feel like this play is a love letter to theater in a lot of ways. I think theater people are what this play is written for. It's where this play will will play the best is with people who have had some any any interaction with theater, taken any amount of course. And at the end of the play, hearing that and thinking about, oh yeah, that time that I took that intensive at like a folk school about storytelling, I loved those people for five weeks. I dedicated time to those people and now I, I never see them again. Life ended after that. <laughs> and now and now it's something new. I think yeah, that's and- and, and what occurs in the class is really that for many of these characters, as we've said, life is totally different, totally different as a result of what occurred in the class. The most obvious large level changes occur in Marty and James, who we learn through this final scene uh, split up because of what James revealed. We know we know from the final scene of the drama classes that Marty isn't living at home anymore. And then through Lauren and Schultz 10 years later, we learned that they really did split up and Marty moved away and they're, they're very much not together anymore. So that's a large level life change that really turned around the life of Marty and James who were, if not happily married, at least presenting happily married prior to the drama class. And then there are smaller psychological changes that occur in Teresa and Schultz. Teresa potentially learning that the fear of being alone shouldn't be enough to drive me to be with just anybody because there are disastrous consequences when I do that. Schultz Mm -hmm. learning that I can't just marry anybody I see right away. (laughs) (laughs) There has to be a, a real relationship developed before I pretend that we're married. 
married again. Yep. Uh, and then Lauren's sort of growth and maturity, you know, she looks back on that drama class and says, that was a moment where some of what was going to occur in the next few years of my life fell into place, where I learned what I loved. And I did this West Side Story immediately after, and it was great to play the part that I did. And I did some more in college, and now I'm doing something totally different. And as a young person, Lauren has a little bit more access to that feeling of like, in the past 20 years of my life, so many things have happened right in a row that seem like they're changing the direction of my life. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I I, I think, I think too, like if we accept the events of those, of, uh, uh, of what they talk about at the end, these, as far as why it's these two at the end, I think it, it makes just good sense that we get to end it with those two. Cause they they have the, the they have probably the best ending of anyone in the group. Um, they're, they're not they, you know they're not alone. They're with people and they are capable of the reflection at the end. Yeah, it it's an odd pairing because I feel like the more natural pairing would have been Schultz and Teresa. That's and maybe maybe natural is the wrong word, but obvious probably is the right word. Mm-hmm. That feels like the obvious place to yeah. go. I, I agree and, with and obvious. And it actually ultimately works pretty well for the script to go against the obvious. To pair two people that – do they have a scene together, just the two of them, in the um, whole course of the play? I don't think just just those two other than the, the you know, the personal scene of her being Schultz's monologue right. She giver. plays Schultz. That's yeah. correct. Mm-hmm. But I don't but, think it's, there's ever a dialogue scene I, between and them. And I don't feel like their paths cross very much. Yeah, she discovers them kissing at one point. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And then even within the improv games, there's not a lot of substantive things that one of them brings to the other. Like, you know, when Lauren has the scene of her parents that's really impactful, it's Marty and James playing her parents. When right. Schultz watches... Uh, 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 Laura, I guess Schultz does watch Lauren play Teresa at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I don't know, kind of interesting maybe. Right, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's, a, it, it's two very separate characters in a, in a quintet of very close people. Schultz and Lauren might be the two farthest apart. The most pol- yeah, the most polarized, yeah. But you get that sweet line at the end that, you know, you know, I always liked you. Yeah, I, I, I really liked you too. You were cool. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah a, it's there's sweet. clearly some tenderness there that uh, actors should reflect on as they mm-hmm. uh, prepare the scenes of the play. And arguably they were the safest from each other. Right. Like, that's true. Have, they were the most insulated from each other. Right. Yeah. They, they, they were able to have just a we're in class together sort of relationship because he's like 48 and she's 16 and he's attracted to Teresa and there was not any of that dynamic mixed up. Right. And so. So, yeah, I, that, that could be part of it as well. Yeah, yep. I think that's <laughs> we, true. We've had, we've had a lot of long episodes recently. <laughs> we, should, <laughs> we should wind down. Hey, this yeah. play is, uh, I like the way you said it, Jackson, a love letter to theater. If Especially if you're a theater person and you have some institutional memory of these games, you're going to find just a lot in here uh, that'll tug at your nostalgia strings. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a masterful, even if you're not a theater person, there is a masterful level of subtextual writing in this play that is worth studying as a playwriting student, a directing student, an acting student, to look at this script and see the way in which the words that are being said are not reflective of the the um, communication that is really being had. 
and the and how well she uses that device. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and as we said at the beginning, I just imagine this plague is is so producible. Like I, I would think that if you picked up this play and got five people together, you could for sure have a fun time acting through the play. Whether or not people will come and see it is up to you, but it's it's a very producible play. I think it's very accessible to people. And so 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 if you end up doing it or have been in it or at least read it with friends or with yourself, we'd love to to talk to you about it and and hear your experiences with it. I'm sure we'll do it at some point in our lives. But let's get on the ball now and hear what you think. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at no script podcast or we have an email no podcast at gmail.com and share your stories with us. We'd love to continue the conversation with you about Circle Mirror Transformation. If you like this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, besides supporting us on Patreon, which is the most helpful thing you can do for us, the other really helpful thing you can do is share this episode or other episodes on your social media account, whatever you use. Uh, telling people about what you're experiencing as part of NoScript is a huge help to us to continue to build the community. We're blessed, we're amazed, we're uh, very thankful for the community we have that continues to grow, and we're interested in continuing to grow even more. You can find our podcast podcast on Podbean where it's hosted on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or on Spotify. The most easiest way probably is just to find the link that gets posted every Monday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yeah. So until next week when we're talking about another play, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for another episode of No Script. Bye-bye.